Welcome to Leading Lights. Thanks for listening. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church in Jersey. Thanks, guys, for being here. Just to remind us all and reiterate why we're here. The Bible says that we're in a fight with the devil. Even though we are Christians and our spirits are already seated in heavenly places, the devil still is at work on planet Earth. Um, Revelation 12 talks about the woman Israel giving birth to a man-child and he fights and he casts the devil out of heaven. Which is interesting that the devil was only cast out of heaven when Jesus came, which is a whole nother topic. <laughs> but it's fascinating. Let me just, before, before I confuse you. He was cast out the first time, but then because Adam sinned, Adam gave him the right to go back into heaven again. And he was only cast out the second time when Jesus came. Isn't that amazing? Fascinating. So Hebrews 9, I think it's verse 27, talks about the heavens have been cleansed. <laughs> I didn't want to talk about this tonight, but hey, that's what happens when you say something in Bible school. You've got to explain what you're talking about. Let me, let me read it to you. Sorry, it's not verse 27. Verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copy, copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It talks about the heavens needing to be purified. How weird is that? Why is that? Because the place that Adam should have had, <laughs> the devil had stolen. And that's why the devil could go into God's place. It says when all the sons of God appeared before the Lord, Job chapter 1, the devil came in as well. Why? Because he had the right to. He'd taken it. But when Jesus died, Revelation 12... Again, let me just read it to you because I, I don't want to leave you confused here. Revelation 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. This is verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage so you get the whole picture. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. That's Israel. Verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and, gave, and pain and gave to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That was the first time Satan was cast down. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. It's quite easy to see what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus coming. And then verse 6 uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Isn't that fascinating? He was thrown out. He can't accuse anymore before God. But then it says, and they, that's us, overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives even unto death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. 
Anyway, so as I was saying, we're fighting this war, but we have won. We have the victory. In our spirits, we have the victory. Our spirits are sealed. They're perfect. Um, but the devil still can affect us. He can affect our flesh. He can affect our minds. He can deceive us. He can affect our emotions. He can influence us. And we need to learn how to be completely set free. So when we, in 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, Confess your sins, that, uh, and the, uh, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our spirit was already clean, but it's the rest of us that gets clean. Our spirit uh, is clean, but our soul and our body. And so it's how do we get clean and free from the devil? And then a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I mentioned this verse, Ephesians 4, verse 28. It says, be angry and do not sin and do not give the devil a foothold. And in that one little verse, there's a huge amount that we needed to say. What it's saying is that when I sin, I give the devil a foothold. But the questions that the automatic response of most Christians is... Um, a wrong response. We either say, right, let me be legalistic. Let me get the law on me so that I don't sin. Let me obey rules, 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 rules. And I'm going to talk tonight about why that's not the answer. But then the other result is I, I say, be angry and do not sin. So I focus on the sin and I focus on my flesh and my flesh is a problem. And that's what we talked about last week is how the flesh always tends towards sin. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian because your flesh is still wanting to sin. Paul the Apostle in Romans 7 said, the thing which I want to do, I can't do unless I'm living by the Spirit. So the flesh being part of our Christian life does not mean that we are a bad Christian. But there's a victory that we need to win. There's, there's a way of escape. And he talks about it. He says, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the flesh is death. So, I want to conclude this little mini bit about sin now. We know that if I sin, I give the devil a foothold. But I want to just talk about the law tonight. Because the response of most Christians, many, many Christians, is to get legalistic. As soon as we know that I mustn't sin, we, we just put a whole bunch of rules on ourselves. Right, don't do this, don't do this, stop doing this, stop doing this do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And we just make a whole list of rules and we think that that will solve the problem. The problem is that rules come from the outside and need the flesh to, be obey, to obey the rules and the flesh is weak. Rules do not solve the problem. Rules come from the outside and use the flesh to be obeyed and therefore they fail. It says in Romans 8, I think it's verse 3, for what the law could not do because it was weakened by sinful flesh. It's the flesh that makes the law not work. Rules cannot work because the flesh cannot keep them. And yet many of us, most of us, you know the life cycle of most Christians is, I get saved by grace and faith. Hallelujah. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus. And we live in this joy for about, I don't know, a few hours until we hear our first sermon. And then, this, and then in the sermon, the preacher says something like, hey, and it's, it's good to fast. And suddenly we think, Oosh, and we put a rule on ourselves, put a law. And then somebody else preaches about grace, so we read something and we're back in grace, and then we hear another rule, oh, and we're back under law again. And most Christians are just battling 
to work out, is it law? Is it correct? What is my relationship to the law? You know, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It talks about doctrines of demons. What are those doctrines? What are they? And then in, in Galatians 3 verse 1, he says to the Galatians, Who has bewitched you? Again, it's a reference to demonic stuff. Who has bewitched you? What teaching has bewitched you? So there's some teaching that came into the Galatians and that Paul's talking about in, in 1 Timothy 4. He says that is demonic doctrines. You know what most of us would think? Well, it, it's, um, you know, worshipping evil spirits. Or Most of us would think doctrines of demons are something to do with either you must sin or something like that. You know what it is? It's legalism. It's amazing. It's amazing. Listen to what he says. And it's quite a shock. He gives an example in 1 Timothy 4. So he says, now the Spirit expressly says, some will follow deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons and will depart from the faith. And he gives a couple of examples. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding people to abstain from certain foods. Those are the two examples of doctrines of demons that he gives. Isn't that a shock? It's a shock to me. When I read that, I was shocked. I didn't think that would be the doctrines of demons that he was talking about. I really didn't. I mean, when somebody stands up in church and they say, praise the Lord, we love Jesus, let's be good Christians and let's give up pork or whatever. I mean, whatever it is. You know, we wouldn't think that was a doctrine of a demon. We would think, man, this person's just fired up and they're wanting to be extra loving towards Jesus by doing an extra good thing. Let's add a rule. Forget pork. Let's make another rule. I don't know. You have to fast twice a week. Or you have to read your Bible every day for five minutes. So whatever. Whatever rule you want to give. You see, sometimes we think, oh, well, he was talking just about those rules. That's not good. But these rules, these are okay. But actually, he's just talking about rules in general. He says, as soon as you get to the place where you're thinking, I have to now do something to get pleasing to God, You've fallen into this trap. And that is, it's a massively important topic. I know it doesn't sound it. Most of us think if a person's preaching against sin and preaching for us to do good, then that's a good preacher. He's actually saying it's possible for you to actually be in a really dangerous place. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> exactly. You're relying on your flesh to keep those rules. Amazing. Okay, let me, let me read Galatians. I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole of Galatians. but So Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's the, it's talking about witchcraft. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? So what was it that bewitched them? I'm just going to read a couple of verses. And Galatians is full of really, really good stuff. 1 verse 6, Galatians 1 verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So this different gospel is anything different to the grace of Christ. And the grace of Christ simply says you are saved not because of anything you've done. 
You are completely saved because of what Jesus did. Anything that's different that he says is a different gospel. Even if it's a good Christian person saying, do good things, as soon as you now put that on as a rule, you've changed to a different gospel. And he goes on, just in case they didn't really understand. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've heard, let him be accursed. He says, even if an angel preaches another gospel to what we've preached, let him be accursed. Scary. Let's look at a few more verses. Galatians 4, verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, remember we're trying to find out what is the doctrine that bewitched them? What is this demonic thing that they were taught? After you've known God, or rather been known by God, how is it that you're turning again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. <coughs> wow. What was it they were doing? They were saying, let's keep the, the feast of whatever. Let's keep this Old Testament feast. Let's do this day. The Sabbath has to be on a Saturday. We have to eat this food. We can't eat shellfish. We've got to do, let, we have to be circumcised. They were trying to add rules. And you say, but there's scripture for those rules. Yes, there is. He says that often the angel masquerades as, a, as a, uh, an angel of light. The devil masquerades. The, whatever rule we put on that says you have to do this to be closer to God, it doesn't matter if it's a good rule. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's a great rule. As soon as I add something to Christ, he says, actually, and I'm going to show you in a minute, you've actually fallen away from Christ. You can't have a mixture. You know, many Christians say we need a balance. We need grace, but we also need rules. He calls mixture falling away. He says it's not, it's not a balance. It's one or the other. Romans 11 verse 6 says it's either by grace or it's by works. If there's any works, it's no longer grace. If there's any grace, it's no longer works. He says it's one or the other. Right. Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You see, we, if you read that verse by itself, most of us would say, He's saying, stand fast in the liberty you've got. Don't be entangled by bondage. Most of us would think he's talking about sin. We would. He's not. He's talking about religious rules. Verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. That is a shocking statement. You say, oh, but I'm just trying to be a better Christian. I'm just trying to add to this grace that I've already got some extra righteousness that I can be an even better Christian. He says, you do that, Christ profits you nothing. Not Christ profits you less. <laughs> all the benefits of Christ, all, this, all the miracles and grace and love of God is cut off. Why? Because I've suddenly added rules and I'm trying to do rules to get to where God wants me to be. I know this is shocking to us. This is shocking to most Christians, but it's clear Bible teaching. Let me read the next verse. Verse 3 of Galatians 5. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You pick one rule. He says, right, you're out of the grace camp. You're in the law camp. Now you've got to keep all of them. Every single rule. And you break one of them, you've broken the whole lot. 
James 2 verse 10 says, He who keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. It's like a pane of glass. If you just put a tiny little hole in it or you smash the whole thing with a hammer, you need to replace that pane of glass. Whatever little sin or big sin, as long as you're trying to obey rules, he says you've got to keep the whole thing to be perfect. And obviously no one can. Shocking. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Yikes! You know, when you hear the words fallen from grace, you know what most of us associate that with? A preacher who's stolen the money or committed adultery. Most of us do. Oh, brother Sonsa, he was such a great preacher and then he fell from grace. In other words, we think falling from grace means sinning. He says falling from grace means trying to be good. a shock it's a shock it's an absolute shock the minute that I say you have to do X Y or Z to fulfill God's requirements the minute I add a single rule and I try to live by them he says I've fallen away from grace you know where this for me is most pertinent is the story of the prodigal son you know there's the wicked son who sins and he takes all his dad's money and he goes and he spends it on rubbish things, prostitutes and riotous living, and he just, he's living with pigs eventually. He's a sinner through and through. And he comes back to his dad, he says, oh, I'm just un unworthy. And his dad takes him back. But the other brother, the other brother's a good boy, and he says, I've always done everything you asked me. And his father says, everything I had was yours, and the, the other brother goes outside and doesn't enjoy the party, the heaven. What does that mean for us? It means there's sinners who've lived drunkard, debauched, rubbish lives who find the grace of God and get saved. And, there's, and they come in and enjoy heaven. There's others who've been in church their whole lives. Who've been good. But they were trusting in their goodness. They thought it's because I'm good that daddy loves me. And when they realized it was grace, their noses got put out of joint. They were all offended. They said, this isn't fair. I've been good. And they don't enjoy heaven, he says. Wow. It doesn't sound right. But it's only right if we understand that it's only grace that will get us to heaven. Any of my good works are not just unnecessary. They're actually the opposite, they, they actually harm me receiving grace, anything that I do by good works. Another example is a person who comes into church, they're not even saved, and they come up for prayer and they get healed like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the, the other person who's been an elder in the church for 20 years, and they've been good and they know the Bible through and through, and they've been attending, and they come up for prayer and they don't get healed. And you know what they say? But I've been good. As long as you're trusting in anything of yourself, you've gone into the wrong side of the... Yeah. So, okay, let me just read you a couple of verses about the purpose of the law. And this will show you why the law was given, but it will also show you the dangers of a Christian taking the law on board. Um, all right, well, let me, let me just read Galatians 3 from the start, and it'll eventually get to why the law was given, but 
Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He's saying the antidote for legalism is seeing Jesus' death on the cross and realizing I cannot add anything to that. As soon as I see that, as soon as I realize he's paid it all, anything I try and add to it is, is an offense to what he's paid because I'm saying that wasn't enough. So he's saying, look, look again at Jesus on the cross and realize nothing you can do is, is worth anything. It's nothing, nothing you can do. Then he goes on, and I love this. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, when you first got saved and God filled you with the Spirit, were you good or did you just receive by faith? Then he goes on. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? You started just with the power of the Spirit, now you're trying with your own strength to be made perfect. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's saying, get this straight. Every miracle God does in your life is pure grace. You cannot deserve it. You say, I'm going to fast before I pray for people for healing, and I'm going to be good, and I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to do my best. As soon as you do that, you're trying to add to grace. That's what he's saying. He's saying you are trusting in yourself, and you're not trusting in the finished work of Christ. Now, all of those things are good to do, but not to earn anything from God. Why do we fast? I'll tell you why. Because it helps us to focus on what God has already done inside of us. Why do I avoid sin? It's not to earn God's blessing. It's not to get favor. It's to help me focus on God. It's to help my mind and my flesh focus on what God has already done. The minute I think I can get a better result in ministry by being good, I have moved out of grace and now I'm in the flesh. Very, very, very important. Then he goes on to say, For as many who are under as of sorry, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, for it says the just shall live by faith. Verse thirteen Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We don't have time to go into it now, but he's saying the law came with curses. Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells the Israelites, half the tribes stand on that mountain, Mount Ebal, half the tribes stand on Mount Gerizim. You guys pronounce the blessings, you guys pronounce the curses. And then it, the, the old covenant says, if you follow all the things in this law, you will be blessed, 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 blessed. If you don't follow all the things, in other words, if you break even one of them, you will be cursed. And he lists the curses, and they're fairly serious curses. They really are. But he says that whole system has been done away with in Christ. Because Christ became a curse. He took all of those curses for you, so that none of them apply to you, unless... You try to get back into the law system by trying to work your way up again. Then all of those curses again on you. Why? Not because God wants to curse you, because you're relying on your own strength again. 
Wow. Let me go on. Okay, verse 17, and he's telling us why the law was given. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. He says the law was given 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. So God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1. He says, Abraham, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise. And in Romans, he says the, the covenant of circumcision only came a long time after that promise was made. He says, the covenant God made with Abraham was nothing to do with obedience. It was pure grace. He just says, God says, I'm going to bless you. Not because you're good, not because you deserve it, <coughs> nothing to do with you. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says, the law was added 430 years after that covenant. Listen, why? Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So he says, 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham, God instituted the law and it was just there for a short period of time to make sure that people found Christ. It says the law was added because of sin. Verse 19, what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So God made this promise to Abraham. Then there was a problem with sin. Now what is the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. Not that the sin cancels the promise, but that the sin hardens the heart so that people cannot receive by faith. And so God gave the law. Now I'm going to read you some shocking verses about the law. But they're Bible. Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he says, the law was given to um, make the world guilty before God and to give us a knowledge of sin. So that's the first reason the law was given, to make us realize I'm guilty. Because when my hard, heart is hard, I don't even realize I'm guilty. I think I'm I think I'm God, actually, when my heart is hard. I think, I, hey, I'm great. And then I hear God's righteous requirement. <laughs> I heard this illustration about this guy who gets to heaven, and um, it's just a joke. It's not scripture, by the way. It's just a, and, and he has to get 100 points to get into heaven. So he says, okay, fine. What have you, the angel says, what have you done? He says, well, I attended church every Sunday throughout my whole life. Every Sunday, I never missed. And the angel says, that's half a point. Half a point. Um, okay, what else have you done? Well, I was completely faithful to my wife and we were married for 60 years. He says, that's another point. You're on one and a half. What else did you do? He says, gee, if this, if this goes on, I'm never going to make it. Have mercy on me, God. And the angel says, ah, oh, you're in. 
That's the principle of the law. The law shows me I can't even come close. When I think I'm great, when my heart is hard and I hear the law, I just, I'm, oh my God. I mean, you read some of the requirements of the law. They are incredibly strict. And that's, that's just a picture of God's standard. The purpose of the law is to show me I need a Savior. But Galatians said, once I've found the Savior, if I still try and keep with the law, it's, it's wrong. I've, I've, I've misunderstood the whole purpose of it. Next verse. Romans 4, verse 15. I'm just going to show you all these verses. It would be a good idea to write these down. So it was Galatians 3, verse 20 onwards. It was Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. Now it's Romans 4, verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's an interesting verse. When there's no law, there's no transgression and there's no anger. When there's law, suddenly I feel the wrath of God. <laughs> when, I, when, I re, when I realize there's rules, suddenly I think, oh, God. Now, this is important for us as Christians to think about. Right, next one, Romans 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Does that mean... What does that mean? Why does it say the law entered that sin might abound? Number one, it, it abounds because I realize how sinful I am. But the second thing is the law actually makes me sin. And this is something that most people don't understand. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56. He's talking about at the end, it's, we're going to say, Where, O death, is your sting? And then he says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56. It says the power of sin is the law. What's that all about? What's that saying? Let me just read Romans 7. To explain this to you. Verse 9. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He's saying there was a time, Paul's saying, there was a time when I didn't know there was a law against me and I was happy and enjoying God's presence. When was that time? I believe it was when he was a child. I think before he grew up a bit, he just loved God's presence. That's what I experienced when I was a little six-year-old, seven-year-old. I used to just love God. But suddenly a law came and he says sin came alive in him when he heard the command. Isn't that interesting? And he died. Listen. Uh, verse 10, and the commandment which was supposed to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. Okay, verse 7. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the Lord said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Wow. <coughs> Have you heard this illustration of this guy who goes into his garden when his kids are playing and he says, guys, have a great party. There's sweets and ice cream and there's a trampoline and a swimming pool. Have fun, but don't spit on this flower. <laughs> but have, have fun. Enjoy. Look, look, all this nice stuff and sweets. But do not... Do not 
spit on this one. And he says he goes inside and he looks through the crack in the window. And before, they didn't even know the flower was there. Now, half the kids are spitting on it and the rest of them are just salivating and drooling, wanting to spit on it. <laughs> so what he's saying is that sin, the problem is, the promise was given, but people, because of sin, people's hearts were hard and they would not have realized they needed a savior unless God said, this is the law. And the, the law produced sin in them, produced an awareness of sin. It gave them a realization of their need. It gave all of these things so that when Christ came, they said, yes, I need you. But he then says, it's so important. If we now keep going back to the law after we've found Christ, we are just asking for trouble because we're now going to provoke sin in ourselves. We're going to think that we're guilty when we're not. We're going to come under wrath and judgment and condemnation when there is none. And I've just got one more scripture and then we go for questions. Right, Romans 7 verse 1. Romans 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? And now he's going to give us an illustration. He says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives and she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. So if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she's married another man. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He's saying that we were married to a man called the law. And he's always right, this husband of ours called the law. He's always right. But he's cold and lifeless. He can't, he's impotent. He can't give life. He can't help us. He's always right. He always tells us what we've done wrong, and he's correct, but he can't help us in any way. He has no power to give us the help that we need to keep those rules because it relies on our own flesh. He's completely powerless. And the third thing about this man who we're married to is he never dies. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not the least jot or tittle of the law will pass away. So he's always right, he's powerless to help, and he never dies. What are we going to do? He says he's not going to die, but you die in Christ. And now you're married to a new man. So imagine a lady who's married to a man who's very strict and stern, and every morning he gives her a list of duties to do before he goes to work, and she takes her list and she tries her hardest every day and he's cold and heartless and he doesn't give her any love and she tries to obey all the rules. And one day he dies, although that's not what this illustration says, just imagine he dies and she marries another man who she loves. And one day, many years later, she's sitting on her couch at home and she feels down the cushion and she pulls out one of those lists that her first husband had given her and she looks through the list of requirements and she finds, you know what? I'm doing all of these and more, but it's not because I've been given a list. It's because I love. 
It just happens out of love. He says we serve in the newness, in the new way of the spirit instead of the old way of the letter. He says that the righteous requirements of the law are met in us. We actually live righteous. We want to live righteous, and we do live righteous, and we have the power to live righteous, but it's not by looking at a list of rules. It's by love for Jesus, and it comes out of us. Does that make sense? I mean, he says it many, many repeated ways and different times, but the message is so strong, and yet it's hardly ever properly taught that actually the law will kill you. If you're a Christian and you go back to the law, he says you're an adulteress. You, you're trying to live in two camps and it will kill you. And, and it will ki- I've seen it in my own life. I've been in grace and joy before the Lord and then I've thought I must do that and condemnation, guilt. And because I'm f- using my flesh to try and obey and I'm focusing on the sin, the sin is provoked and I actually end up sinning. The thing I'm trying not to do, it makes me want to do it more. It's weird. But if I focus on Jesus and I focus on what he's already done for me, the righteousness comes out of me and I find that I'm living by grace and I'm living righteously. If you preach this, some people will say, well, what are you saying? Are you encouraging sin? And that verse you just read, Romans 6 verse 1, is, you know, in this letter of Romans, Paul he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That was the response that people often ask Paul. When he says, what shall we say then? He's saying that what his opponents would say to him. So shall we carry on sinning? And something I found so valuable once when I heard a preacher saying, he said, if our preaching doesn't produce that question, then we're not preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. If my preaching doesn't produce the question, well, shall I sin then? then I'm not preaching what Paul preached. Isn't that interesting? But he goes on to say, of course don't sin. Obviously sin is bad. We know that it's bad. It it gives the devil a foothold. (laughs) It really does. It gives him the opportunity to mess up my life. But it's not God who's judging me. That's the difference. It's not God who's punishing me. It's me opening the door to a a ravenous dog who's going to come and bite me. Why would I do that? But, yeah. I mean, there's... I know this is something... I I must be honest. I wrestled with this for years before it's... And it's not always clear to me. But I know that this produces lots of questions. For example, if I'm tempted to sin, I think about a whole lot of things. And this is real. This is everyday stuff. I think about what would be the consequences for my family. What would be the consequences for my marriage, for my ministry, for the bigger name of Jesus? Uh, what would be the consequences in my own life, my own mental well-being? I would, you know, I would be fractured inside. I would be going against what I really want to do. I go through all these consequences in my life, but if any one of those is I'll be cut off from God or God will stop loving me, then I've missed it. You see what I'm saying? So, for instance, I think, gee, shall I? I don't often think this. In fact, I, I don't think I think this. But let's just say, shall I break into that store and, and rob their cash from their, from their till? Shall I? Well, these would be the consequences. But would God still love me? Yes, he would. Let me just say it the way that the reformers said it. 
they said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. So what they said is faith, it's faith alone. I just receive it. But when I've got faith, it will always lead to works. Well, if it doesn't, it's not real faith. That's, that's the key. So, then he, so, so what he's saying is it's just faith. I just see what God has done for me, and that's all it takes. But that will always produce works. If it doesn't produce works, now those verses about these people will not inherit the kingdom, they suddenly come into being. Those verses, I'll just close now. Those verses from Galatians 5, verse 1, 2, 3, he says, If you do this, Christ will profit you nothing. You've fallen away from Christ. You've been estranged from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For me, those are the, those are the clanging warning bells. The minute I try to earn something, I cut off this flow of grace and power and love and miracle, you know, all the goodness, I cut it off. The minute I think I've earned it or I can earn it, I st- God says, okay, well, you think you can earn it? Go ahead. Let's see how many healings you can do on your own. Let's see how much you can achieve. You know what I mean? That's fine. You want to do it? Go for it. And suddenly the grace stops. And then I'm saying, oh, God, what's going on? So then I try and be even better. More legalism, more rules. Until eventually I come to a place, oh, God. It's like I'm getting born again again. I say, oh, God, I'm sorry. Have mercy on me. He says, I was waiting for that. And he pours it back in. But I've got to try and stay in that place of just grace, just grace. Obviously, we don't sin, we don't want to sin, but even if we're tempted, and even if we do sin, he says there, Romans 8 verse 1, there is no, no condemnation. Even if my flesh is crying out to sin, he says there's no condemnation. And suddenly, like Maria was saying, when I'm standing in that place, ah, I'm forgiven, I can reject that sin, I'm not condemned just because I was tempted, suddenly the power flows in and this whole thing of grace and the Spirit, it all starts to work together. It's, it's no longer just theories and ideas. It clicks into place and it becomes a living thing, a living, life-giving way of, of going through my life every day. Right, we need to, um, in the next couple of weeks, may, probably not next week, but the week after, we're going to go through the steps to freedom, which are seven steps. We're going to do it here together in one, in one session. So next week is the last session before we do that. So if anyone has any questions on the Steps to Freedom, if you could please just read through them, absorb them. If you have any questions, ask them so that we can clarify anything that needs to be clarified before we go through. The reason we've been laying all these theological foundations is so that when we come to do the steps, it's not a surprise. We know why we're saying what we're saying. And if you read through them this week again, you'll see that everything we've been saying has been building up to going through those steps to freedom. There's one bit where it, it talks about my father is, and it talks about I renounce the lie that my father is harsh and judgmental, and I take in what my father really is like. And it's a beautiful little section of the steps to freedom. I really encourage you to look through that um, this week as well, and just get an idea of who, who the father really is. Um, and then the week after next, we'll go through it, and then we'll just use the last remaining couple of weeks to talk about follow-up and how we can help others be free and how we can pray in the freedom and remain free and all those other good things. Um, but that's where we're at. So thanks, everyone. Let's, let's just pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much. Even though it's hard for us sometimes to 
get our minds into this way of thinking. Thank you for the truth that we can never earn what you've given us. We can never add to what you've done on the cross. There's nothing we can do to earn your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to learn every day more and more to flow in this lifestyle of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.